And thanks to all of you for being here on this brisk evening that reminds us we're really getting into election season. I'm so South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg brought out 700 people to the lawn of a Des Moines high school in mid-October. His staff knows it takes a lot of money to run a presidential campaign here. I was critical. Uh, we're investing, of course, in several early states. That weekend, news outlets reported Buttigieg had opened more offices in the state than any other candidate. One of the reasons why I'm proud to have the most extensive operation in the state is because we're going to need it. Candidates need a steady cash flow to hire organizers and buy ads. I can go head to head with Donald Trump on the economy. Because I don't want to be the president for half of America. We fight for our country. That's the nature of who we are. They're catching flights, renting RVs, and shaking hands with caucus goers. But how much money are they raising? I'm Clay Masters. I'm Kate Payne. From the newsroom of Iowa Public Radio, this is Caucus Land. Iowa is cheap in retail politics in some ways, but you still need money. Whether a presidential hopeful can keep that cash flowing is a major stress test. They have to keep their staff working and get on the debate stage. The thing about Iowa is people come here to spend money, not to raise it. Where the money comes from can be its own challenge. Some Democratic candidates are swearing off ritzy private fundraisers and big corporate donors. We really need to address the elephant in the room, and that is how campaigns are financed. But they're all racing to catch up with the fundraising power of the president and the Republican. Republican National Committee. Keep America great says it. We want to, we have made America great. We've made so much progress. What do fundraising numbers say about the overall health of a campaign? And is it possible to make it in Iowa on a shoestring budget? We'll talk about it and we'll sit down with New Jersey Senator Cory Booker, who's faced his own money issues. For us to stay a vibrant and viable campaign, we're going to have to continue to raise money at a really good clip. That's all coming up after this break. Caucus Land is sponsored by Gravitate Coworking and by Cornell College in Mount Vernon, Iowa, where students get a first-in-the-nation, hands-on experience with the political process every election cycle. Explore interdisciplinary learning at cornellcollege.edu. This is Caucus Land from Iowa Public Radio. Candidates have been campaigning in Iowa for months, some of them for years. They're flying out to test the waters in the early days and ramping up to deploy dozens of staffers and drop six- and seven-figure ad buys. It's all an attempt to build a healthy operation, to raise name recognition, expand support, rise in the polls, and make it out of Iowa. We've got a few different ways to gauge the health of these campaigns— Polling, media coverage, endorsements, and fundraising. In mid-October, we got an update on how the campaigns are faring. The Federal Elections Commission released the latest fundraising reports for the third quarter of 2019. Looking at these numbers is a way to lift up the hood. It gives us a glimpse at strengths and weaknesses that may not be clear otherwise. To break this down, we brought in Brianne Fonensteel. She's the chief politics reporter for the Des Moines Register. And Donna Hoffman, a political scientist at the University of Northern Iowa. Fonensteel says the latest fundraising numbers show some clear divisions in the race that are reflected in recent polling. I think right now you can definitely look at the top five. Um, You know, Bernie Sanders is consistently raising a lot of money. Elizabeth Warren has consistently surprised people and raised a lot of money. Pete Buttigieg, Joe Biden, and Kamala Harris, I think, really round out the top five. But we're getting to the point, too, where it's important to not look just at how much they're raising each quarter, but how much they have in cash on hand. 
As of October, Bernie Sanders is leading cash on hand with $33 million, then Elizabeth Warren with $25 million, and Pete Buttigieg with $23 million. Kamala Harris has $10 million, and Joe Biden has $9 million. How much money a candidate is bringing in also lets us know if they're spending themselves into a hole. We use this term called a burn rate, and are they spending more than they're bringing in? And so there are some candidates right now who are spending a lot more than they're bringing in, and that's really problematic because you're not bringing in enough money to sustain the field operation that you have in place. And so some of those candidates are um, Amy Klobuchar and Tim Ryan, Beto O'Rourke, actually Kamala Harris also, and Cory Booker. Fawn and Steele says part of the success of the leading fundraisers is they're diversifying where that money is coming from. They're raising a lot of small donations online, not just from large donors. This has also become a kind of progressive litmus test for some voters. Sanders and Warren are pulling it off pretty successfully. So that's a really interesting distinction in these campaigns is how they're going about fundraising. You know, Pete Buttigieg for a while was really on the, you know, the fundraising circuit. You hear a lot about Kamala Harris doing a lot of fundraisers. And so, you know, the Warren campaign is now kind of famous for calling up those small dollar donors and saying, hey, thanks for your $5. And that's kind of a nice social media play, too, because then they post those videos online and it kind of helps, helps again, perpetuate that fundraising. University of Northern Iowa political scientist Donna Hoffman says she's been surprised by some of the fundraising numbers, which don't always track with polling, like for Joe Biden. I was a little surprised. I was a little surprised that uh, Joe Biden didn't do um, do better. Bernie Sanders held, you know, pretty steady, uh, still having and actually had his best quarter, I think, actually. Um, And so while we're seeing um, Biden holding in the polls for the most part, I mean, he's declined a little bit. Um, Sanders has declined a little bit, but Sanders fundraising is, you know, still um, going strong, whereas Biden's fundraising uh, seems to uh, be a little bit lackluster. So what does cash flow tell us about how well a candidate might do? Hoffman says that historically, campaigns have invested heavily in dispatching staffers to early states like Iowa. Getting organizers on the ground across the state helps build a grassroots network. Barack Obama seized on this in the 2008 cycle, firing up people to go to the 1,600 precincts across the state on caucus night and make their case for their candidate. But you've got to have enough money to pay those salaries. You've always needed money. It's the amount of money that has uh, increased. And also in Iowa, you can rely on volunteers, but you have to have people to organize those volunteers. And oftentimes, you know, in in several recent cycles in particular, we've seen people setting up uh, more and more local offices that gives them a storefront, usually in some visible place um, in, in a town, that volunteers can walk off the street in. For many campaigns, payroll for their staffers is the largest expense, but not everyone makes that investment. President Donald Trump came in second in the Iowa Republican caucuses without the typical focus on grassroots organizing and retail politics. But Ted Cruz won. Ted Cruz had the traditional organizational structure. Um, And then, you know, Donald Trump was obviously able to uh, go on and win the nomination for the Republican Party. But, you know, as as somebody who watches Iowa politics, I don't think uh, we would advise any candidate to take up the Donald Trump strategy. Uh, I think only Trump could do that kind of strategy because he had uh, name recognition. He had uh, the celebrity. He had the uniqueness of his campaign. Brianne Fonnensteel agrees that under the right conditions, it can still be possible to make it in Iowa on a budget. You need to have enough money 
to travel, basically, right? You know, the the thing about Iowa is you have to be here early, you have to be here often, and you have to have enough money to make that happen. And so, you know, some candidates, you'll see them fly in on commercial airlines versus private jets, and or maybe they'll drive more um, than, than some other candidates. But you just have to have enough to get the job done. Um, and especially in the age of social media, I think you can really um, kind of use this as a platform to have that vi- even a viral ad. You know, you could put out a digital ad that's really smart and gets attention and all of a sudden a bunch of newspapers and websites are going to write about it. And that doesn't take a ton of money to produce something like that. So there's still that platform. You just have to have enough to to be here and to get around the state. She says donors will respond. Fundraising is another way to gauge how people are feeling about these candidates. Fundraising is also kind of a measure of momentum and enthusiasm. You know, when your candidate is doing really well, it's a lot easier for them to raise money. So early on, there was this really big number for Beto O'Rourke when he first got into the race. You know, there was a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of anticipation around his candidacy. And he brought in a lot of money and put together a big Iowa staff. And as he's kind of faded in the polls, you see that reflected in his fundraising. For candidates trying to break out, this can turn into a vicious cycle. It costs money to make money. Because without money, you can't do the things on the ground that can help give you rise in the polls. But if you're doing well in the polls, that helps you raise money. Um, So it's a little bit of back and forth, and I'm not sure which comes first. So someone put it to me recently that it's kind of a vicious cycle. You know, you, you go down in the polls, and so you struggle to raise money, and so you struggle to put, you know, the things on the ground that you need, and so you struggle more, and it, it just kind of is self-perpetuating a little bit. Some have been candid about their lack of fundraising. In September, New Jersey Senator Cory Booker said he may have to drop out if supporters didn't make his next goal, but they delivered. Former Housing and Urban Development Secretary Julian Castro made a similar ask in October. While some of the Democrats have been able to run up their totals by boosting online donations, none of them can compete with the fundraising operation of the president. Combined with the Republican National Committee, the president's re-election campaign has some $150 million cash on hand from July, August, and September. For context here, the president has more cash on hand than the top five Democrats combined. UNI's Donna Hoffman says President Trump has a serious advantage as the incumbent. But, you know, Donald Trump can spend money in Michigan right now. Um, He can spend money in Wisconsin right now because he can be focused on the general election campaign, whereas the Democrats have to be focused on first getting the nomination in a crowded field. And different states matter in that calculation uh, than do for Donald Trump at this juncture of the campaign. In the meantime, she says Democratic donors may be forced to split their money. You also have compounded for the Democrats in this cycle that, you know, at one point we had, what, 25 Democrats running for the nomination and money gets split up. Also, with this many candidates in the race, you will have some people sitting on their pocketbooks uh, until the race narrows down a bit uh, to see where they're going to put their money. So I don't think Democrats are going to have trouble raising money collectively Uh, against Donald Trump. But right now, it is uh, just a different landscape that they are confronting than what uh, Donald Trump is confronting. We're going to hear more about a candidate's own make-or-break fundraising moment. We'll talk with New Jersey Senator Cory Booker after this break. Caucus Land is sponsored by Cornell College and by Gravitate Coworking, providing flexible workspace for freelancers, remote workers, teams, or anyone sending emails from a couch or a coffee shop including those in Iowa for the caucuses, with premier co-working spaces in downtown Des Moines and Historic Valley Junction. 
Learn more at gravitatecoworking.com. Are you enjoying this episode of Caucusland? Find more stories about the candidates and learn about their positions on the issues. Stay up to date on the race to the White House by going online to iowapublicradio.org 2020. Your support makes Caucusland possible. Take a few minutes and donate to IPR. Whether it's $5, $10, or more, your gift is an investment in high-quality journalism. This is Caucus Land from Iowa Public Radio. I'm Clay Masters. I'm Kate Payne. We're starting a series of conversations with presidential candidates as they hunt for support ahead of the Iowa caucuses. We caught up with New Jersey Senator Cory Booker in early October, taking questions from a crowd of roughly 50 people at a park shelter in Boone. This is really what I see right now as a moral moment in our, in our culture. This is not a referendum on one guy in one office. It's a referendum on who we are and who we must be to each other. In his stump speeches, more than focusing on plans per se, he sketches out a vision of the country where people are better to each other. We're not going to beat Donald Trump by being more like him. We're not going to beat him by fighting him on his turf, on his terms, using his tactics. We are called in this moment not to show the worst of who we are, but the best of who we are. Afterwards, he took some selfies with supporters, then got on his RV. We hopped on to talk with him. Booker is a proud vegan, and a Burger King caught his eye on our way out of Boone. The fast food chain recently introduced a new plant-based burger. Whopper. The incredible? Uh, the impossible. Or impossible, excuse me. My, yeah. my bad. Yeah, Booker got a couple of those vegan-friendly burgers once he got to his next campaign stop in West Des Moines. But first we asked him a few questions about the state of his White House bid. In September, you had said that if you didn't raise a certain amount of money in the next 10 days, you were going to suspend your campaign. You, you met that goal. But I'm curious, I mean, like, does that, is that a cause for concern that are, are you going to be having to, like, make this plea every month now? So, first of all, I want to be very clear on why we did it. We have been building a campaign, not just to be in this race, but to win the race. And by all objective uh, criteria that we've been looking at, we were building a winning campaign. We had one of the best organizations on the ground here in Iowa. Uh, people have called it one of the two best, us and Senator Warren. We, we lead the field in endorsements from local uh, activists and elected officials. But we knew that we could not enter the fourth quarter if we couldn't ramp those that team up. And so we saw that either we raised more money because the, the top uh, uh, sort of uh, polling campaigns are right now raising three, four times the money that we have. And they're going to be able to erode our competitive advantage. And I'm not going to stay in a race if I don't have a pathway to win. And so our appeal really worked. We not only raised the 1.7, but we raised about a half a million dollars more. And so we're in it again. But that doesn't erase the urgency to keep raising money. And so for two decades, you've lived in an inner city community in Newark, New Jersey, and that was your decision. That was a choice you made to live in a community that was seeing addiction and crime and disinvestment. And that is quite a different situation than many U.S. senators find themselves in when they achieve that office. Um, how has that experience impacted your policy priorities? Well, it's shaped me in, in very deep ways and in many ways 
I, I have an amazing neighborhood. We don't mistake wealth with worth. It is below the poverty line. But my neighbors are beautiful, incredible people who challenge me to be better and a better public servant. But when you see your neighbors working full-time jobs and still needing food stamps, you see that that's an injustice. That's not an intellectual thing. It is an urgent thing. When you are living in a neighborhood where you hear gunfire and people get killed, these aren't intellectual issues. This isn't about a policy plan. I'm going to go to the White House with a burning urgency to do what's right because there are experiences I've had that, that have deeply affected me. When, when you live in a community where you see the children on your block being told by their parents not to drink the water coming out of their faucets, you know that this environmental injustice, there are 3,000 communities in America where children have more than twice the blood lead levels of Flint, Michigan. So these issues, I, 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 feel, I feel blessed to, the, the things I talk about, the bonds I feel with people in rural Iowa or uh, families that, you know, school teachers who, who can't afford to live in the communities in which they teach, all of these things for me are things I've experienced and I feel a driving passion to do something about them. And when I say experience them, experience them because you're living in a community that's on the front lines of the fight for the American dream. So. I feel blessed by Newark and the progress we've made, the transformational change that we've shown that we can make under difficult circumstances. The city still has a long way to go, but I'm excited about being president of the United States because from, from Iowa to New Jersey to California to the Gulf states to the Great Lakes, I know who we are, I know what we're capable of, and I feel a drive to be the president that uh, helps us to come together to achieve impossible things again. On the topic of education, uh, you've said, uh, well, you push for charter schools in Newark. Um, you've also said you would prioritize public schools. I mean, what's with the change of mind, or, or was there a change of mind? No, there's no change of mind. I mean, gosh, when I was mayor of the city of Newark, we had an awful situation where we had schools that weren't serving our children, and we had to find solutions that worked for us on the local level. And it wasn't charters versus district schools, we just said we were going to close bad schools. We closed charter schools. Uh, and we were going to expand great schools. We expanded our magnet schools. We expanded our high-performing charter schools. And we took a system that was under takeover in one of the lowest-performing urban districts in the state of New Jersey. Now it's the number one school system in America for beat-the-odd schools. So we found the solutions that work. But I'm running for president of the United States. The reason why my teachers union endorsed me twice when I was running for Senate because our federal solutions have to focus on all children and 93% of our kids are going to charter schools in America. And charter schools need to be accountable schools. And some states even write charter laws that are just bad. So my job as President of the United States is going to be to support, uh, again, uh, uh, public education, to raise teachers' salary, to get rid of uh, the debt of school professionals, school, student debt of two school professionals, fully fund special education. Do the things that are going to help Iowa schools from rural areas to places like cities like Des Moines, uh, Iowa City, to make sure that every child in America has a great public school to go to. And so say you're elected in 2020. Yes. As a black man, would you proactively address what many people see as a divisive time in our country when it comes to race? The election of President Donald Trump, which for many people re-exposed the racism that is here in the United States. Yeah, but we, we've, first of all, yes. But we are, we are the great country we are, not because we've been absent racism, but because Americans of all racial backgrounds came together to stand against that. 
Look, my roots in Iowa, my grandmother's grandmother came here from Alabama to a coal mining town called Buxton, Iowa, which was a town, there's a book about it called the, the Iowa, Ut the American Utopia, because European immigrants, black migrants from the South came together, worked together in coal mines, had an integrated town. I mean, I am here right now because blacks and whites came together to build this incredible infrastructure project called the Underground Railroad. I, I'm here because uh, uh, white Americans were willing to stand up when my parents were denied housing and pose as a, a, a home buyers to expose the racism. We are, we are here as a country and have accomplished incredible things when we come together across racial lines and affirm that there's one nation, one justice, one, I, one, one love, as I like to say, and, and remind people that patriotism is love of country, and you can't love your country unless you love your fellow countrymen and women. And love is sacrifice, love is service, and we are here because of that kind of patriotic love. So the gardens of our democracy have never been free of the weeds of hatred, of bigotry, of sexism, but the greatness of America comes from our response to that and how we've overcome that from Bull Connor to uh, McCarthyism to the Know Nothing Party, which was anti-immigrant party that rose up against German, Irish, and Italian immigrants. We've always overcome those folks who try to divide us along lines of race, religion, uh, or ethnicity, and and have advanced as a nation when by, by those spirit that spirit of uniting us. So this is a man, this is a president right now who's a divider. <laughs> and is trying to uh, uh, aggravate racial differences for his own political benefit. I'm, uh, my, my time will be marked by many things as President of the United States, but one of the things I'm gonna work on every single day is healing this country, is bringing us together, is reminding us that we have common bonds and common cause with each other. Senator Booker, thank you. No, thank you very much. We're wrapping up the show with a campaign story that could only happen in Iowa. University of Northern Iowa political scientist Donna Hoffman, who we heard from earlier, shared some of her favorite moments with us. She is not a native Iowan, and she's still impressed by all the attention the state gets. As she was raising her son Nathan, she didn't want him to become a jaded Iowan, skipping out on all the campaigning. I had found that some Iowans take for granted that there are presidential candidates appearing all the time everywhere. And I didn't want my son to uh, take that for granted either. Knowing that political participation is a learned habit, she wanted to get her son out on the trail as soon as she could. They figured age seven was a good time to start. 2008 was the cycle that he was old enough to do, which was great because we got to go see Democratic candidates. We got to go see Republican candidates. They got a lot of good exposure. You know, in 2008, we had a lot of senators that were running. They often brought senator friends with them to campaign for them. So at one point, I calculated that my child uh, had seen one-tenth of the United States Senate without leaving this county. After going to all these events, Nathan, like so many Iowans, was able to narrow it down to a short list. So after seeing all of these candidates, my son one day says, Mom, Senator Biden is my favorite candidate. And I said, well, why is that? I asked, curious, of course, as to what political insights my seven-year-old had at this time. And he said, Joe Biden had donuts. The caucuses are all about persuasion, right? Okay, share your Only in Iowa stories with us, too. Just call 888-893-2036, leave us a voicemail, and tell us how to get in touch with you. Or email us, caucusland at iowapublicradio.org. 
Tweet about it with the hashtag OnlyInIowa. Caucus Land is produced by me, Clay Masters, Kate Payne, and John Pemble. Our music was composed by Garrett Schmid and performed by Garrett and Aaron James. Our news director is Michael Leland. Our executive producer is Katherine Perkins. We also get help from our digital team, Lindsay Moon and Matt Searin. Subscribe to Caucus Land wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate and share the show. Caucus Land is a production of Iowa Public Radio News.